It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bécher, meaning digger. Hello everybody, welcome along to another edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast and what a fantastic time it is to be alive. We've got through lockdown and we have England against the West Indies. The first test has been absolutely fantastic. It's great to have cricket back on our TV screens and radios as well and we have live sporting action to discuss. Before we get into the chat though, where we look back to the first test match and then look ahead to the second test match, thank you very much indeed to tvsportsblog.com for their support of the Cricket Badger Podcast. Give them a follow on Twitter at TV Sports Blog to look ahead to the second test match and to look back over the last week. I'm joined by cricket journalist Graeme Harcastle. Graeme, how are you? Yeah, not so bad, James. Yourself? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. And as I say, it's been uh, fantastic to have cricket back on our screens and we can talk about live action and rather than all the nostalgia pieces and looking back in time that we've had to do through lockdown. And it's been brilliant, hasn't it? And I think the first point to make, Graeme, um, obviously we're two Englishmen, but I actually watched the end of the test match yesterday and I didn't actually particularly care who won it. I just thought it was fantastic to have cricket back and massive plaudits to the West Indies, A, for being here in the first place and B, for producing a match-winning performance. We touched on the, the, the kind of the gratitude for them being here, didn't we, in last week? Um, and yes, I, I agree with you that, that I, I kind of watched yesterday and, and just saw it as a as a kind of great spectacle rather than being absolutely desperate for England to win in a sense. Of course, you want England to win, but I, I didn't lose any sleep over it that they didn't. So I think it's fair to say that probably the West Indies are everybody's favourite side, aren't they? The, the only thing that I would have would have liked would have been for, for them to have been like eight down needing needing twenty or something like that. You know, it'd have been interesting to see how twitchy they'd have got then. But that last hour or so was a little bit of an anticlimax. But that shouldn't take away from 
from everything that went before it. You know, it was uh, it was a fabulous test match, as you say. Not every test match could be like Headingley last year or the World Cup final. No, can it? but it's. I, I take your point, but I just I thought uh, obviously the first day was disappointing with all of the rain, but it was a test match for me that just gradually kind of bubbled up. It showed what it what a test match can do in terms of the narrative of the game. Yeah, not every session's massively exciting, but it gradually simmers and it came to the boil towards the end. And that final day, going into that final day with England 170 ahead two wickets in hand and every single one of the four results possible exactly what test cricket's all about yeah it, it kind of really sprung to life didn't it after tea on day four when when Gabriel took all those wickets I was around at the parents house and kind of said to my dad I think England were four or five down I can't quite remember but you know they've pretty much got this you know they've got this back on an even keel they're perhaps slightly favourites now and then no sooner as I said it they lost a few wickets and it was it was right back into the West Indies favour and that was when it really kind of bubbled up as, as you say they probably needed another 40 or 50 didn't they, England to be mm. right in the box seat I, I still would have fancied England to have, have whittled out the West Indies chasing 250 you know even though they got their six down I think it would have been quite a tough ask for them to have got that far I think I tweeted at one stage that I felt England needed 220. I thought at 220, they were probably then steering the game rather than chasing the game. And I think as it proved, that was probably about right. There's a number of talking points to come from the first test match. I don't know if that's because we've been denied cricket for ages, so we're just desperate to talk about cricket. But I just felt it was a very interesting first test match. I'm going to talk about selections in a, in a second. But first of all, the behind-closed-doors nature of the of the event, I didn't think it detracted at all from actually viewing the test match, but there were certain instances, I think, in that first test match, and this is by no means an excuse for England, because I think West Indies outplayed England in, in pretty much every aspect of the game through the first test match and thoroughly deserved to win it. But when England had the West Indies three down in that second innings, if there had been a full house at the Aegeus Bowl, the Barmy Army, the trumpet going, the crowd roaring Joffre Archer in, those kind of things make a difference in test matches and without that home crowd support I mean we've seen it in football the away side suddenly isn't at a massive disadvantage are they from a viewing experience I thought it just kind of rammed home how good Sky are as a broadcaster in producing cricket content I thought they did it superbly I thought the the kind of background hum of the the crowd effects were not intrusive and and they were very respectable to, to kind of listen to. Um, for example, just off piece like that, I absolutely hate watching the football that's been back with the crowd noise. If possible, I will turn over to the channel that is just behind closed doors, natural sound. Because the amount of times you see a shot hit the side netting and there's a massive cheer, it's almost as if it's been a goal. I think it's really off-putting in football so there there we go that's the the crowd noise that I use on my football commentary from home that we we have to play underneath (laughs) our commentary and it just bubbles under yeah. it. The only, the only trouble is, is with crowd noise. It, uh, it it never actually, if there's a goal, it doesn't get any different. Uh, and and I, I know in the football grounds, they have iPads in front of them or whatever, and they have certain different buttons to press depending on the nature of the game and who's doing what and if there's a goal or there's a chance or yeah, something. Well, that, that, that sound that you've just played, I think is fine. It's the, the kind of, the sound effects that are produced from iPads that are reactive to what's going on in the game. Quite often you will see a goal or a shot that hits the side netting and a goal sound comes up and it's almost as if whoever's producing the sound hasn't realised it's not gone in. It's so off-putting that. But the, the cricket this weekend 
was just very, very good. And from that point of view, as I, said, I thought Sky did it superbly, whether it was from their, their player zone, I thought that worked well and that could be something that they use going forward when we're all back to normal. I thought the, the content they produced around the Black Lives Matter stuff was absolutely sensational. Hats off to Michael Holding and Ebony Rain for Brent. I thought they were, they were exceptional. And it was just a really, really positive return to cricket. Absolutely. And I think the, the Black Lives Matter stuff, um, in Michael Holding, the, the few clips um, I saw of that, and obviously Ebbs as well, it was, it was absolutely brilliant, wasn't it? It was spellbinding. It's something that everybody, if you haven't watched it, it's available out there on various platforms. Make sure you do, because it's something that people, I think, need to see. As you say, hats off to both of those two and, and for Sky for running that. I thought it was brilliant. Let's get back to the cricket, though, and to the selections. And I'm talking about day one selections now. We, we spoke last week about the fact that England will rotate their bowl and therefore I, th- I thought it was a bit strange when there was so much of a call for Stuart Broad because Stuart Broad will play test matches this summer there's no doubt about it England though looked at the track and they picked a they decided to go with pace didn't they and they went with Ward they went with Archer and then they went with Jimmy as well obviously for his, his old head and, and, and decided that they couldn't play both Broad and Anderson in the same side I know Broad was asked the question and he, he didn't come out and hold a press conference to say how angry and frustrated he was but that was his answer to the question when Sky asked him it about why he'd been left out and he said that he'd contacted Ed Smith and, and asked for some clarification on his future and got a few positive noises because there's no doubt Stuart Broad will play more test matches for England. It's almost like it's one of those classic examples of player being left out, maybe the bowling attack not performing quite well without him his stock rising massively as a result of that. I mean, his stock can't rise too much more because he's taken so many wickets. There's no guarantee Stuart Broad would have done any better and not returned anything more than one for 70 in that first innings. I just thought England were off the boil, certainly in the first two days, two full days of the game. Looked very rusty indeed and were outplayed by the West Indies. It's not the first time that England have started slowly in a test series, is it? And I agree with you. I I was a little bit surprised that they didn't play Broad given his recent... Uh, say recent form this form of the last 12 months going back to the Ashes series last summer and then South Africa I thought he deserved the chance to, to play however the team that they put out should still have performed better than they did let's face it it wasn't the bowling that let them down it was the fact that they got 204 in the first inning totally and were chasing the game from there on in so let's not put too much stop behind that broad decision. I had absolutely no problem in what he said. I thought it was portrayed a little bit unfairly, actually. I thought I thought a mountain was made out of a bit of a molehill, really, from those comments that he made. It was almost, he, like, it was almost like the media were making him, him out to be a bit, a bit petulant and sulky, where he... Exactly, yeah. Effect, uh, yeah. Effectively, I, he just answered the question that he was asked, and it would have been wrong for I, him I, to I, say that he wasn't frustrated, because he, he should be frustrated. Yeah, and, and answered it honestly and respectfully as well, I felt. At, at no point did he have a go at anybody. He said he was angry as as anybody would be. You know, you've got to you've got to think about he's been he's been waiting for the best part of three or four months to play a game of cricket. Everybody's absolutely desperate to get back on the field and to get back watching the game. And then you get left out when 
when you perhaps think you shouldn't do. I, I never thought he had a go at anybody. He answered it respectfully. He answered it honestly. And that was that. And that's what we all want. We don't want to hear kind of cliches about these things. We want people to talk honestly. And that's what he did. It's a little bit um, like when the, when the footballer is substituted and he looks angry to be substituted. You often hear managers say, actually, that's what I want to see. I want to see them looking disappointed when things aren't going quite right to them. Because it's that kind of fire in the belly that actually makes them play better next time, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, the thing you don't want to see is kind of... Um, shirt throwing and things like that now now that that was never going to be the case from broad but as i say just repeating myself he didn't have a go at anybody he answered things respectfully he answered things honestly move on be ready to take his chance when it comes and i'm sure i'm sure he'll perform and like, and like you said he didn't actually have a go at anybody but he, in fact he did did the reverse of that he said you know look at the bowling attack out there jimmy anderson Joffrey archer mark wood ben stokes they all deserve to be out there as well. You know, England have got a, a luxury at the moment. Um, it didn't maybe look like it at the Aegeus Bowl, but if you actually go down England's seam bowling options, they have an absolute pile of players that could play in, in the first test match. And even if you go under that group of people, you've got Ollie Stone, you've got other people, Sam Curran, Chris Wokes, who would have been disappointed not to be in that first test team. You know, England have got to make a decision. There's only 11 shirts to go around. And I had no problem with the team that England put out. But I'll say again, I just felt the execution was the problem. It was the, the first innings, as you say, to be 204 all outs. I know they had that difficult period on the, on the first evening where the conditions were again and the second day's batting wasn't easy but it's test cricket and you had I mean if we discount Don Bessie was 31 not out we had three other players in the top order who got past 30 but didn't get to 50 and that that's a problem isn't it if you get yourself in in the test match you've got to make it count but England have this habit of you you hinted at it earlier they play best when they've just lost they're getting criticism and they, they kind of fight back the first test match in the series England had tend to underperform don't they yeah it didn't actually need much more did it in that first innings as, as we were saying that you know had the West Indies been chasing 220-250 to win then it, it, it could have been a, a bit of a different game so so that gives you an indication they probably only needed 250-300 in that first innings and they'd have, have been driving the game from there on in but for, for nobody to really go on and, and get 50 or 60 was a, was a big problem and brought about their downfall really The Cricket Badger Podcast is brought to you in association with tvsportsblog.com. Excellent sporting content. It's well worth a look and give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog. Let's have a look at um, England's selection for that first test match and then how that might be different for the second test match. I've been quite vocal, as you'd probably expect on Twitter over the last few days. There's two people in that England side who I don't think should play at Old Trafford and they are Joe Denley, who I know is your pick and we'll get on to your picks for the series in a second and it's got nothing to do with that, Graham. I'm not trying to downgrade your uh, competition against me. No, no, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm going to I'm going to explain the reasonings for Joe Denley for, for the reason that I picked Joe Denley. So crack on I, I think I'm going to agree with what you say actually I'm going to feel quite bad about this and I often feel bad about criticizing anybody because it's it, it's not in my nature but yeah this is this is cricket and you you live and die by the stats that you produce and the performances you produce I think Joe Denley and Josh Butler who we come on to are two of the nicest guys in the world two of the nicest guys in cricket you see Joe Denley interviewed he comes across as a cracking bloke but you look at his test record now 15 test matches 827 runs average of 29.53 I saw George DeBell, who I've got a lot of time for, a friend of ours, who was saying the other day on um, the, the hashtag Polite Inquiries on Crick in 
info that you know you look around the county scene you're not telling uh, not telling me that if you picked a Sam Northeast or a Gary Balance or um, a, a Sam Hain or whoever they wouldn't produce at least that or not better in in the 15 test matches you gave them I think Joe Denley's now had his time he's 34 years old there's no sign of that he's improving as a player for England and obviously we the, you know the added complication for Joe Denley is that Joe Root's coming back into the side so somebody has to stand down and on the basis that Zach Crawley looks I thought really good in the second innings um, Sibley's making a fist of opening Joe Denley's the obvious person to step aside I think it's a time to say thanks Joe thanks for your efforts but return to Kent and uh, and good luck for the future yeah I, I agree um, I think I think he should I think he should be dropped from this match actually the reason I picked him as my leading series run scorer that I fancied him to score runs in the first test. And as a result of that, he would be in contention, therefore, to be leading run scorer in the series, given it's a, a short series. bit different if it's a five-match series, but it's not. And I felt that he would, therefore, kind of ride the crest of a wave a little bit. You know, he'd, he'd have the confidence of, let's face it, he's not, he's not been an absolute failure in his however many tests he's played, 15, 15 16 tests, something, yeah. something like that. He's not been an, an abject failure, far from it. He's been pretty consistent. and his, This is the frustration his, for me, though, Graham, is that there are signs that he's actually a really good player. You know, some of the cover drives he's produced, some of the rear guard actions, the fact that he's able to soak up a few balls here and there are all massive positives in his camp, but it's just the fact that he can't convert a 20 or 30 into something much, much bigger. Yeah, yeah. And on the fact that he didn't get runs in, in, in the first test, I think it's time for him to step aside. Now, it makes me laugh when people say it's the end of his test career as a result of that, because it's not necessarily the end of his test career. Well, it should be. So... Somebody, well, somebody could break a finger, you know, on the eve of, on the eve of the game, and and he's the again the next cab off the rank. I think in the short term long, he's going he's going to stay in the bio bubble, isn't he? And and therefore on yeah, that basis, long, what you're saying is right. Term, yeah. Long term, I would be disappointed if he played many more tests. But to completely write him off is, I think, a little bit foolish. And I think that you will find that it'll be Root coming back in for Denley. Crawley will retain his place and move up a, a spot in the order to three. And I think that is the right thing. I think the, the only thing I, I slightly disagree with you is I think if you drop him now, that, that's it. He's 34 years old. You're dropping him for a reason. You're dropping him because he hasn't quite cut the mustard. As I say, there's the signs that he, you know, he's a good player. And certainly at county level, he's a fantastic player, but just not quite made. He's climbed about eight of the 10 steps required to, to make it as a test player and those last two were very important the fact that you go on and make yeah. big match winning performances so I think if you say to him now Joe you dropped I think actually the, the best thing for England to do is actually say right Joe pack your bags get out the bio bubble and if you think you need batting cover I mean they've got a, a fairly big squad and there's batting cover in that squad anyway but if you ne- if you think you need to bring a Sam Northeast or a, a Sam Hain or, or, or somebody else into that uh, bio bubble now then do it so that he's maybe isolated ahead of the third test if you require him. I mean, you've got people like James Bracey there, haven't you, who, who have got the, the opportunity and, and time on their side. It's just as to whether you would end up kind of thinking to yourself, broken finger on the eve of a test match, do we want to throw somebody in? Or even the morning of a test match, you know, somebody can do it in the warm-ups, can't they? It's just as, as to whether you believe that a short time span between injuries is is the right time to throw somebody in for the debut. That, that's my only thinking for, for maybe Denley coming back in. I think it happened to Keaton Jennings, didn't it, a, a couple of years ago. 
Put it this way, I would much rather see Josh Butler return his place in the side than I would Joe Denley. Well, you see, this is where we're going to differ because I actually, I can make more cases to re- retain Joe Denley than I can Josh Butler because I can't make a, can't really make a case for Josh Butler. You look through Josh Butler's first class record, there's nothing startling. You look through his test career and he's had a pretty long one now and one century, which was 106 some time ago, over the last 12 or 18 months, he's averaging around 20 for England in, in Test cricket. And for me, Graham, it's a bit of an ego pick from Ed Smith. He was one of Ed Smith's early picks. And Ed Smith not staked his reputation, but certainly got a few plaudits at the start of it because Josh Butler did okay in the in the first couple of Test matches. And that reflected well on Ed Smith. And it's almost like a little bit of an ego stubbornness thing with Ed Smith. He doesn't want to kind of re, you know, relinquish picking Josh Butler because it might come good. And it seems to me Josh is being picked now on what he might do, what people have seen him do in white ball cricket and what he's potentially capable of rather than what he's actually done and what he's doing. And you look at his 42 test matches, um, just over 2,000 runs at an average of 31.46. But as I say, it's going down rather than up that. And I think it's time for England to say to Josh Butler, concentrate on white ball cricket. You are effectively one of the first two or three names on the team sheet in, in our white ball team, a fixture and a world star and probably a top 10 player in the world in white ball cricket. But it's just not quite worked for you in test match cricket. It's time to move on and, and to look for somebody else. And I don't think Josh Butler can have too many complaints with that, if that is the case because he's had 42 test matches to prove himself and, and hasn't done it. My kind of argument to keep, keep him in the side can, can be ripped apart it, it immediately. I, I completely accept that. And it is on the basis of, of what he is possibly able to produce. But how long um, are we going to wait for he, that? He, We've had 42 well, no, test no, matches what, and, he, what, and he hasn't done it. Are we going to wait 60 test matches, 80 test matches, 100 test matches, and then say, well, it was worth it because he played one fantastic double century? Do you know what I mean? It's kind of how long do you wait for him yeah, to do it? Because no, at, at the moment, he's not doing it, is he? I completely accept that. And I, and I never said at any stage that I would definitely retain him in the side. The advantage for retaining him in the side is that he has got the ability, more so than Denley, to produce something completely remarkable. To change a game in, in an instant with, with his capabilities. However, the negatives are, and they're probably at the moment, well, it's they, not probably about it. They're definitely at the moment outweigh the positives are the fact that there is so much competition for his position in the side that it is probably time to say, let's look elsewhere. He's got Bairstow chomping at his, his heels, who has been incredibly unlucky to be, to be left out. However, he has had a, a poor run as well. But, you know, th- th- there's no real difference in form between the two. And, and you have to say that Bairstow is probably a better keeper. You've got Ben Folks, who is, who's a better keeper than, than the both of them and is a pretty respectable batsman as well. You've got James Bracey as well. I can't really give you a, an assessment of his qualities or capabilities. I've never actually seen him bat, but his form for Gloucestershire is obviously good and, and warrants him to be within that England setup. So I think that Butler is pretty lucky to still be in the side. The difficulty that England have got is this biosecure bubble and the speed of test matches coming along do kind of perhaps dictate a little bit on selection or may come into their thinking. And it, it may well be that they just decide, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they just decide, right, we're going to give him two more test matches to see if he can turn it around. And then 
we've got a little bit of a gap, we'll start a fresh for the Pakistan series. That wouldn't surprise me at all. However, I wouldn't be against them saying, let's go back to Fairstow, folks, or or bring in Bracey. I, you know, I, I wouldn't be against any of those calls, really. I think they're all going to be good enough to, to kind of perform at test match level. We all know what Josh Butler can do in the white ball cricket. It's astonishing what he can do in white ball cricket, and he's he's amazing at it. But you look at his first-class record even, and six centuries and 107 matches. There's nothing in his red ball history CV that says you have to pick him. He's a standout yeah, candidate. One, you have to one, pick him. You you you, yeah, you compare that, his first class record tell, with Bairstow's, and he's he's a long way behind Bairstow in terms of his first class runs. Stats don't tell the full story, though, do they? In in the sense that I bet those 107 matches, I bet he's never played six or seven games on the run, or rarely played six or seven games on the run. Certainly, certainly in the last ten years, whilst he's been in the England setup, he'll have been snatching games here and there for, for Somerset and, and latterly Lancashire. So I feel sorry for him in that regard, that he has been unable to get a, a decent run at, at improving his game, you know, w- without the, the kind of challenges of, of, of swapping formats and things like that. That's not a, a, a factor that should, that should mean he stays in the side. All I am saying is, if they are going to keep him in the side, then it's probably because of what they feel he could produce. And he's almost like that little bit of a, a luxury player. Now, luxury players are all well and good when you're winning test matches and you're the best side in the world. England are not that at the moment. The 1-0 down in the series. And they need people to stand up and perform. At the moment, he's not doing it. I saw George DeBell say, that there was talk in the press box at the Aegeus Bowl that Ed Smith goes to bed in Josh Butler pyjamas. He has a Joe Denley duvet on his bed. That's probably an exaggeration, but I think there is an element of, if you're one of Ed's boys and you're picked by Ed Smith and he likes you, then it's very hard to be dropped by England at the moment. If you're not in that kind of rose-tinted Ed Smith world, it's very hard to break into that England side and I think that needs to change a little bit. There needs to be a little bit more balance, doesn't there, really? And that, that isn't Gary balance um, in terms of... Why not? Well, Why not? Well, you know, I mean, every, everybody listening know. to this knows my opinion of Gary yeah, Balance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I, I just think that it needs to be easier to be dropped and easier to be picked in a way. I don't want to go back to one test, two tests here and there because if you get picked, then you deserve to have at least a couple of series to prove yourself. That's not an issue. But Josh Butler's had 42 test matches, hasn't got any better, and he's still being picked. Fed up of collecting your team's matchday subs? Worried about carrying cash post-COVID-19? Try slateapp.co.uk. Less contact than contactless. Slate, the smartest way to collect weekly match fees and more. Download the app, slateapp.co.uk. Not just for cricket, any clubs that collect subs. It just makes sense. Stick it on the slate. Slateapp.co.uk. I said on Twitter last night that the next Cricket Badger podcast, I will wear a mankini to record it if Ed Smith actually does drop Josh Butler because I just I just don't see it happening. But if we get to the point where he does get dropped, who comes in for him? You've mentioned the, probably the three standout candidates there. If we just run through them quickly, Ben Folks, who has done nothing wrong in an England shirt, averages just over 40. That might be slightly inflated because he was playing against a, a slower, slower tax. If you have a criticism of Ben Folks, it's certainly not his glove work. It's that he might struggle against... Very good fast bowling that 
I guess a lot of people could you could say that against. Um, Johnny Bairstow, who we've talked about before. I mean, he's been shunted anywhere from almost opening the England innings in a test match to batting at number seven and has never quite known what his role is, whether he's wearing the gloves or not. And I think if you're going to be fair to Johnny Bairstow, you give him the gloves, you put him at number seven and say, right, prove yourself. Um, and that's the kind of challenge that I think Johnny Bairstow would relish. And I know a lot of people have said to me, well, he's a walking wicket. If it's a straight ball, he plays around it, it gets LBW. Well, give him the chance to actually prove people wrong because if you actually go through his first class record if you go back a few years in England he's shown he can do it at the highest level he hasn't done it recently but that's because I think largely because he's been asked to concentrate on winning the World Cup for England and has been shifted all over the place in and out of that test side I think if you give him a bit of stability he might respond to that so that's Johnny Bairstow and James Bracey I have seen a little bit of him I think he's batting he's certainly potentially test class and his keeping's decent so I'd have no problem with throwing him in as well. So it's one of those things where I think Josh should go. I have no firm thoughts in who should come in to replace him and I'd probably be happy with any of the three. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, Johnny Bairstow kind of deserves the right to be to be next cab off the rank, but it seems that that's probably just not going to be the case with two Glovemen in the um, in the bio bubble already. I think he's been he's been harshly done by, but we'll, we'll just have to see how it all plays out. You know, the, the other thing he's going to be harshly done by best though is he's probably not going to play a great deal of first class cricket again for the next few months to kind of prove himself, is he? Because he's Yorkshire have got five games coming up between the 1st of August and the end of September, mm. possibly six if they get through to the final of the Bob Willis Trophy. But Johnny's going to be in in one-day action for England. He's going to be bio-bubbled again, if that's, <laughs> if that's the right phraseology, because he's going to be down at Southampton preparing for series a little bit earlier than you would usually have to. It's going to be quite hard for him to, to break back in again. And that's not his fault, and it's not really England's fault, no. the fact that COVID's come along. It's just circumstance, isn't it? And it's, it's the same at the moment, isn't it, really? I mean, I know they picked 55 in the squad, but with no county champion, Championship action going going on. There's no chance for a Sam Hain or a Daniel Bell Drummond or a Hassan Azad or somebody to score two double centuries and say, "Look, I'm in massive form. Pick me." Is there? There's there's nobody actually sort of dancing around the window waving at Ed Smith. And I, I don't know what this. This is something that I would quite like to see actually. The amount of overseas players who have been playing in county cricket for the last number of years, getting themselves ready for Test match series and and things like that. It doesn't really seem to be reciprocated around the world, does it? And I just wonder whether it's a little bit of the cricket family helping each other out, whether first-class teams around the world, whether they would be a little bit more open to English players going over there and playing first-class cricket during our winter. To be able to say, right, we've all missed out on cricket over the last six months. It's affected everybody in, in different ways, be it directly onto onto their seasons or financially in other ways we're all going to pull together we'll help each other out I like that idea um, on, on a recent podcast Graham Dan Norcross joined me and we did 10 things to improve cricket around the world and um, pick five each and one of Dan's uh, which I quite liked was that the associate nations who are bubbling under kind of test match status and don't maybe get the opportunities maybe and have the household names that the Test Match Nations do have. The ICC funding a couple of their players to go and play for an English county or an Australian state or something like that. Yeah, whether they actually play, that depends on how, how well they do in, inside that squad. But at least they're actually experiencing what it's like and, and getting in there and having nets and talking to some of the players that have played a lot more than them. And that can only be good to kind of spread the game around the world. But that's what you've just said. I, I think it's a really good idea. And it's 
possibly something even the ECB could help fund, you know, rather than actually send them to a, you know, a Pakistan team or an Australian team and say, right, you're forced to take this person, you have to pay his wages. The ECB could pay the wages because it's actually doing the ECB good as well. Yeah, and it, ju- it just gives gives somebody like a Johnny Bairstow an opportunity to play a continued amount of first-class cricket when he's probably not going to be, be in the England setup, And it gives him an opportunity to say, hey, I'm still here, I'm scoring runs, I'm good enough to play for England. Pick me, and you've yeah. got you've got some you've got something to pick me on, rather than just well, we feel we feel he's good enough. A little bit the same with Butler. You know, he could if he if he has the the drive, which I'm sure he does, to kind of really improve himself as a first class cricketer and as a Test cricketer. Maybe he could go out to Australia and combine it with a, a big bash contract. Almost, you know, right, I'm going to play for Victoria and then I'll play for the Melbourne Stars or I'll play for the Renegades or something like that. So he gets the best of both worlds. Let's move on to looking ahead to the second test. Then Graham Old Trafford, the venue for the second and third test match between England and the West Indies. The game starts on Thursday. Plenty of markets uh, are available, obviously, across the uh, bookie world in terms of the second test match. We'll go through our markets. We're going to have twenty units to add to our little competition, which we can spend however we like in terms of the markets available for the second test. And let's go through and we'll compare a few with our picks already in the series as well. Let's start with our series predictions because we can put a line through them both because we were very pro-England. We thought England would dominate this test match series. I agreed with you that West Indies would have sessions that they won, but overall England would be too strong. You went 2-0, I went 3-0, and we can put a big, big whack-whack oops through those two predictions because West Indies already got one to their name and it set the series up beautifully and West Indies have played really well. I think England did underperform at the Aegeus Bowl and like we've said, sometimes it takes a little bit of a a taste of defeat and a little bit of criticism for England to actually, to bounce back and almost put two fingers up at everybody that's kind of um, doubting them at times. Joe Root comes back in as captain as well, obviously at Old Trafford. How do you see this second test match going? England are two to five to win the match. West Indies are 7-2 yeah. to two and the draw's 15-2. to two. It's so difficult to say now, isn't it? Because, you know, there's going to be further disruption to England's side one way or another or further change. It's certainly not disruption to have some of the quality of Joe Root coming back in, but there may be a couple of other optional changes that they make. The West Indies will be riding the crest of a wave. The pressure is really on England. And I was I was kind of like talking up the possibility, the reason I went 2-0 was talking up the possibility of rain, enough rain at some point during the series to kind of render a test match a draw well if that's the case then they're not going to win the series are they so did we, we, when we were talking last week did we well, underestimate yeah, we, we obviously, I mean, yeah we obviously did holders of the wisdom yeah, trophy we, we did. holders of the wisdom trophy now won four of the last six test matches they've played against England so well yeah I mean they won the test and we said they wouldn't win a test so yes we underestimate that's obvious if your kind of mythical units were were real money and I had to put something on, I would probably still back England to win this test match. I wouldn't do it with any great certainty, I have to say. We should look, um, back, should look back quickly at our first test predictions as well before we get into the second test too far. Um, they're all crosses against them, unfortunately. You put your 20 units across Zach Crawley, Shai Hope, um, the double of those two to top score in the first innings and Joffre Archer to uh, take the most wickets in England's first innings. So they're all dead in the water. I was hopeful for Rory Burns in my my bet for a while. He got to 30 and then and then fell and Joffre Archer to be man of the match. If he'd continued in the second innings like he started it, 
that might have happened, but obviously Shannon Gabriel took that t- tag. So uh, our first test match bets weren't particularly impressive. So we need to make amends. You kind of had Jason Holder, didn't you? It's like a series leading wicket taker, and I had Gabriel. Um, so those those were about as as good as we as good as we were. You've got um, you've got Dowrich as well as West Indies bat. I had Shamar Brooks, who I thought looked a million dollars in the first innings, and then was yeah, out very did, cheaply looked, in the he second. Looked, he looked very good. The kind of Dowrich situation, I, w- I would have hoped for him to have got like another 60 or 70, and then he'd have been right in the thick of the action. He just, just probably isn't far enough ahead, is he, at the moment? <laughs> He's not ahead at all because... Um, Jermaine, because Jermaine, Jermaine Blackwood, Blackwood, yeah. Got his 90-odd, so... You've got Denley in the England batting lineup, and I've got Root. Yeah, right. um, so both of those are looking a little bit dodgy, but I, I understood that dodginess when I picked Root because I, he, he was always going to miss the first test match. So, I mean, in a way, that first test match went quite well for that bet because no England player has really got that far away. Nobody's got 180 and kind of has almost secured the market already. No, no. And, and I, think, I think I would look to somebody like a Root or potentially Stokes they would be my two I look at for the top run scorer in the in the test in terms of England I think they're the, the two best batsmen and Stokes I felt looked good in that first innings he was looking good until he until he got out in the second as well so a route has got an exceptional record at Old Trafford yeah. so that you know there's every, there's every possibility that that those two could uh, could stand up that was, that was one of the reasons I picked him really because I knew the second and third test match over Old Trafford and his average there is is fantastic he's got he's got a few yeah. centuries there as well England bowling markets uh, we both went for a permutation of Archer and Bess I mean they're both still in play they could they could easily come through and I was very disappointed Graham because I mean we both went for Rakim Cornwall in the West Indies bowling markets you went for Gabriel and I went for Holder so those two are the, the leading wicket takers for the West Indies going away from the Aegeus Bowl but Rakim Cornwall he could still play at uh, Old Trafford obviously because that's a, a spinning track Track. Um, but I was disappointed that we didn't see Big Rakim playing for the West Indies in the first test. I mean, obviously, from the way it, uh, it transpired, it was probably a good decision because they won the test match without him. But it'd be nice to see him playing at least one test match through this series. It's interesting now, isn't it? All this this talk about rotation and things like that. How does that play out? Because rotation-wise, I think England would have hoped to be 1-0 up in the series and to be rotating from a position of strength. Yeah. Now they're under significant pressure to win the series. And the West Indies, on the other hand, do you kind of tinker with a, a winning side? I don't know. It's, 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 a, it's a very difficult one. It, it was a very, very interesting result for a number of reasons, that that one included, like kind of team selection. So, well, I'll, I'll um, tell, you the, tell you the 11 that I picked on Twitter last night for England. Um, Sibley and Burns continuing as the opening pair. No surprise with Crawley and Root coming in three and four. Um, Stokes and Pope five and six. So no massive changes apart from rooting for Denley there. Bracey to come in for Joss Butler purely because um, I've doubts about Ben Folks against Speed and I've obviously Johnny Bairstow sat at home rather than in the bio bubble. So James Bracey comes in at, uh, at the wicketkeeper's plot for me. Then I've gone for Sam Curran, Dominic Best, Joffrey Archer and Stuart Broad. So I'm resting Jimmy Anderson purely on a rotational basis. He'd come in back in for the third test match um, and probably Chris Wokes would come in for that third test match as well. But um, I just fancy a little bit of skiddiness from Sam Curran with a bit of potential reverse wing on a dry Old Trafford wicket later on. So that, that's the route I've gone. I've heard a few people say that maybe Jack Leach would come in, but I'm very, I'm all for Don Best getting a long run in this England side because I, I really rate him and I think he could be the real deal for England. So I'm keeping Bess in um, throughout the, the summer. Um, and that would be my 11. But I, it, it, you're right, it's a, it's a strange one in terms of selection because in an ideal world, England would have gone 1-0 up. They'd be steering the series and they'd be able to pick whoever they liked and knowing that whoever comes in would be more than qualified to, to play. So, it's I mean, it's almost like they have to pick Stuart Broad now as well, isn't it? Yeah, well, 
No, I don't think they have to pick him. As I said, because the issue was with the batting. The bowling wasn't particularly under par, was it? I, I, mean, I, I thought in the first innings it was. I thought Jimmy bowled okay, and I thought Don Best was reasonably tight. I thought Mark Wood and Joffre looked a little bit undercooked, as can only be expected. You know, you're going into a series after not playing um, truly competitive action for four months, so... You know, you're going to be undercut to a degree, no matter how fit and firing you feel you are. Um, but I thought Archer and Wood got better as the match went on. I thought in the second innings they were better, but by then it was a little bit too late, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, the other, the other thing, it's not a, it's, it's a very inconsequential thing in the grand scheme of things, but it's a, it'd be quite nice to see Jimmy Anderson take, take his 600 test match wicket, become the first seamer in the history of the game to reach that market at his home venue and maybe even with a wicket from his own end. Wouldn't it? <laughs> you know, the, it'd be shades of Jeffrey Boycott, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's um, this kind of three tests. The next three tests are at Old Trafford, so you think there's a very good chance of him achieving that. Could he do it in two Test matches? Well, yeah, I'm sure he could. It'd just be nice to see him play all three. It's that Badger style. Let's uh, use uh, 20 units on this uh, second Test market. In terms of where you're going to go with your 20, have you decided how you're going to spend them? Seven and three on Root and Stokes, topping and batsman. Batting West Indies. I like the look of Brooks. I thought he looked excellent. So I shall have three on him. I'm going to stick with, I'm going to put, I'm going to put the other seven on Shannon Gabriel as the top West Indies wicket taker. And I'm going to leave the England bowling alone because I'm not 100% sure. You know, I could get completely stuffed with rotation and things like that. So I think I'm going to leave that alone. So seven on Joe Root to be the top first innings batsman. He's a five to two shot. Ben Stokes gets three of Graham's units. He's a four to one shot in that market. Shamrar Brooks to be the leading batsman for the West Indies is a 11 to two shot. And Shannon Gabriel, actually third favourite in the market behind Holder and Kemar Roach. He's a three to one shot. And that's possibly the, uh, the value pick in that West Indies lineup. For me, Graham, my 20 units, we're not going to go too far different, I don't think. Joe Root, as I said, I'm tempted to avoid Joe Root because I've got him in the series betting. I just think he's too good to ignore here. Um, you look at Root at 5-2 to two to be the top first innings batsman. Yeah, he's coming in after not playing, but he's just a, a finely tuned batsman. I don't think that's going to be too much of a, a problem for Joe Root. So I'm going to put 10 units on Joe Root at 5-2 to two to be my uh, top batsman for England. I find it strange in these markets, Graham, for the West Indies batsman. I totally agree. I, mean, I was very pleased with how Shamrar Brooks played um, as I've got him as my top series batsman. I'm going to avoid him in this because I've got him for the series, but... I find it very strange how Shy Hope continues to be the favourite in the West Indies batting market. His, apart from those two times where he scored centuries against England at Headingley, his record of late is awful for the Caribbean team. He's 7-2 to two to be the top first innings batsman. I thought watching him at, at the Aegeus Bowl, certainly second innings and, and a little bit in the first innings, he looked all at sea and England looked as if they, they've got him almost whenever they want him. So I, I find it very strange that Shy Hope continues to be the favourite in that market. I'm going to put... Five units on um, Craig Brathwaite at 7-2 to two to be the top West Indian first innings batsman. I thought he played very well. And then I'm going to look at the, the West Indies bowling markets and I'm going to go against you purely for competition. I'm going to put the, my remaining five units on Jason Holder 
at 11 to 4. Let's finish our discussions on the captaincy. Joe Root comes back into the side. Ben Stokes said that he understands why Joe Root has so many sleepless nights and um, because it's an all consuming <laughs> job. And I, I felt a little bit for Ben Stokes. I think he's a brilliant vice captain for England, but he'd got no captaincy experience ahead of taking charge of England in that test match. I think he did very well considering. I thought there were some mistakes he made on that final afternoon. Let's face it, if you throw in anybody who's never captained a side before, for, you're going to get some errors because it's a job that you learn as well as it comes naturally to you. I know George DeBell on the polite inquiries thing, every time he was asked about Ben Stokes, his captaincy, he said, oh, I thought he was really good. He scored runs, he took wickets. Well, that's not captaincy. That's how he is as a player. The captaincy is what you add on top of that in terms of tactics and in terms of, of drive. Ben Stokes has not got, is never short of drive. He's never short of fight. And he's never going to shirk from a from a challenge. But it's the tactical naivety that was there for me. And I think, I know a lot of people, the jury's still very much out on Joe Root as well. But I think Root's grown into the job. And I think tactically he's getting better. And I think England will benefit from Root coming back in and, and leading this side and, and having Ben Stoke reverting to, as his vice-captain. But the, the second part of the, the point is that Jason Holder, wow. You know, what a... What a what a player, first of all. You can see why he's the number one in the world in terms of all-rounder. His bowling in the first innings was superb. But as a leader, as a statesman, as an ambassador, as somebody that probably post-cricket can go on and probably be the chief exec of the West Indies or a politician or something, he's just got something about him, hasn't he, that man? Yeah, he has. He has. I mean, he's just a... He's just the all-round package, isn't he, in, in a sense of he's a fabulous cricketer and, and someone who who will be a danger at Old Trafford because you'll get that extra bounce there with his bowling from, from the height that he, he comes down at. And and as you say, just just the way that he he deals with, you know, the, the statesman side of things, the, the things he says about about the game, about the, the Black Lives Matter stuff. I don't know whether you saw that little exchange he had with Michael yeah. Holding. You know, just just everything he is, he is just a special, a special cricketer. He reminds me a little bit of Steve Patterson, Yorkshire bowler. If Pato ever hears this, then he might, he might kind of his eyes might raise, and so might a few other people's. But yeah, Pato's a, a very much an unsung hero of that Yorkshire um, bowling attack over the last uh, last decade, really. Now, um, but Jason Holder, you mentioned it coming down from that height. I remember talking to Simon Guy, the former. Yorkshire wicketkeeper about keeping to Steve Patterson and he said that the problem with Pato and the reason he's so economical is because he comes down from that height and he's got that nagging length always gets a little bit more bounce than people think and as a keeper you're always jumping up and taking it around about sort of chest high even you know when you're standing up to him and I'm, I wouldn't suggest standing up to Jason Holder but he's got that ability hasn't he to get it on a length and it just to kind of ping up at the batsman and that's why he's so hard to face. He's not expressed pe- speed. He's not going to go down as one of the great West Indian fast bowlers in terms of frightening batsmen. But in terms of his nagging length and that little bit of extra lift he gets, he's a real, real danger. Both are certainly first kind of names on the team sheet, aren't they? You know, Patterson for, for Yorkshire, you know, you, you, wonder, you wonder how they'll ever do without him because he is so important to the side and Jason Holder as well. So, so from that regard, I, I can see the comparison, certainly. We avoided the market when we talked about the uh, our 20 units. The 2-5 to five on England, who have a habit of bouncing back um, after, uh, after being stung by a defeat... Two to five on England. I know it's not the kind of price that maybe gets anybody yeah, too excited, I, but is it is it one you take? No, I, I I believe in that. I think that I think they will win the Test match. As I kind of said to you before, I I, I wouldn't be plumping for them. 
with any great certainty. Two to five is, is very, very short, isn't it? It's very short on a you team know, that's I'd, just been beaten and been been outplayed. Yeah, I'd, I'd be, I'd be kind of, I'd start to get interested at you know something like ten to eleven, you know, mm. that kind of price. I, I think that I think they need to be a bit closer to even money to kind of draw me into to backing them. I think they will win the test match, but not. I, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be touching two to five. Well, Graham Hardcastle, you've spent your twenty units. I've spent mine. We've got our series bets that are boiling up as we go over the two test matches at Old Trafford. I will speak to you next week after the second test match. But until then, thank you for joining me. No problem. Take care. Podcast Network. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that you know Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.